All right, so we're going to be in Matthew 5, 13 through 16 today. I want to give you a little bit of context about the passage before I read it. So this passage is classically called part of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, in part of that, it's been written about in Christian history a ton. And so you can go and you can Google and you can see all sorts of stuff about this section of Scripture. We pick up our text, Jesus is speaking, and he's about one-third of the way through his sermon. Uh, at the end of chapter 4 of Matthew, in chapter 7 of Matthew, we see that Jesus is going around the crowds, with the crowds uh, around Galilee, and preaching and healing the sick. And so that's kind of the overall context of our passage. And so he doesn't have the sound system, the stage that I have today, and so he's got this huge crowd and he wants to be heard. And so he goes up on a hill and he has the crowd sit down, he draws his disciples close, and he begins to teach to them. And specifically, this section of scripture is Jesus describing what it looks like to be a follower of him in this world. Now, this is a tall order, um, and I want you guys to understand it through the context of grace, okay? And so what I mean by that is we well know that we are saved by grace, not by works. What does that mean? It means that I cannot be good enough to go to heaven, to be right with God. I am incapable of doing that. Uh, so we need God's grace. And this, of course, is the gospel. This is why he comes down, uh, dies on the cross for our sins. He stands in our place, and we receive that grace. And when we accept Christ, we recognize we are going to heaven not based on our own works, but based on what Christ did on the cross. Well, similarly, as we look at this passage of Scripture, keep that in mind that not only do, are we saved by grace, but we live a godly life through grace. And so when you look at this, don't look at it as a set of rules that we need to aspire to, and if we don't, we've failed. If you're doing that, that's law, that's death. Paul speaks about that in Romans. Instead, look at it and see, this is what God has, wants me to aspire to, and I can only achieve it through his grace, by relying on him. And so again, that's the whole context of the passage. But as we get into verses 1 through 12, which we're not going to talk about today, we see that God uh, describes his people as being blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the pure in heart, and so on. And then we get to this passage, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. In your pew Bible, this is page 810, uh, if you need that. And uh, let me read it for you now. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others." so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So right from the beginning, I want you guys to understand that Jesus is giving us two metaphors. You've got salt and you've got light. And these metaphors describe his people individually as well as corporately. And so that's each and every person in this room, but then also the church as a whole, both globally, uh, but our specific church here in Community Church. And so, uh, as we look at it, I want to look specifically at salt first. 
Um, but this is referencing God's followers and, and how are we to be his people by being salt and light. So let me read verse 13 one more time. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And so salt is used for a lot of things. In today's world, we use it on our roads. We also use it to soften our water. Now, in ancient times, salt had very different purposes. But some of that we still use today. And so, in ancient times, salt was used as a flavoring. And as we see this table salt, we're not a whole lot different. We put our salt on meat, on vegetables, on crackers, on pretty much everything we can get our hands on. So it's a flavoring. It's also a preservative. And so we will take salt, this is a mineral salt uh, that you can actually like rub into something and give it flavor, meat specifically. And so in ancient times, it was very common to do this. Why? Because meat rots quickly. Even in our day and age today, it rots quickly. Now it rots less because we throw it in the refrigerator. But they didn't have that ability, of course. And so they would rub salt in it and it would make it taste very different than how we have it taste and it would also last longer. And so that, in that sense, salt is a preservative. Now we also preserve things today using salt. Frozen food is a great example of that. There's a lot of salt in that. Restaurant food has a ton of salt. Fast food, another form of restaurant food, tons of salt if you take a look. It's kind of scary. I don't like looking at those things, but there's a lot of salt in there, and part of that is to preserve it. And so salt was valuable in the ancient times, so valuable that uh, in, into the 20th century, it was used in Africa as a form of currency. And so as we look at these two ideas, Jesus is calling us to be salt. He calls his people to be salt. So uh, we are believers, and as believers, Jesus wants us to come together as a church and be salt, to be that flavoring to Portage Lakes, to uh, Akron, and onto the world. Specifically, salt brings flavor. Christians are to be the flavor of Christ all around us. And what I mean by this is as, uh, as we are um, excited, hopeful, uh, attractive in our faith, and live a life that shows Christ, that life is supposed to attract people to Jesus and to see, well, why, why, is, why is their life different? How are they different? And in that way, we are God's salt. We're his flavor in the community. Salt is also preservative, like I was already telling you. Christians are to go into the world and make a difference for the kingdom. And what I mean by this is, as I was just talking about this idea that salt would be rubbed into meat and preserve it, we were to go into the world and see the brokenness of sin and death, to see the falling apart of our society, to see the systems, the cultures, all the different things that are failing. And we're to go in and be that preservative and make a difference. And how do we do that? 
verse 16, through our good works. Not for our glory, but for Christ's glory. So we are the literal hands and feet of Christ. This step of acting out and preserving our culture is ultimately a witness to the gospel. In the way we live our life, when we are holy and separate from the culture, it points to Christ, which is why we're called in uh, 1 Peter 3.15 to be able to explain our faith. So as we act as a preservative, people are going to start to say, hey, what's, what's different about that person? How, why do they have hope? Why, why didn't the pandemic cause major chaos in their life? And they'll ask, well, what's different? And 1 Peter 3.15 says, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so the idea is we're salt. We preserve and we bring flavor to society and to the people around us. And that in turn makes them go, there's something different about that person. Hey, what's different about you? And then that gives us an opportunity to share our faith, to literally explain the hope that we have within us. So the final implication in this verse 13 is that if we're not being salt, if we're not being flavor and preservative as salt in the world, then we're not fulfilling God's mission. And if we're not fulfilling God's mission, we're only good to be trampled upon. So a great example of this is actually our founding fathers. And Christian, uh, who was up here earlier and who uh, gave us Benjamin Franklin's prayer, uh, he did a very good job. You know, arguably Benjamin Franklin was one of the most, um, our least Christian of that group. You know, Pastor Mike was saying that uh, in, before he prayed. And it's true. And Benjamin Franklin, I mean, you, you look at that prayer, or that, that and he's basically calling all of us and the founding fathers to pray more and to be a nation based on prayer. And as the guy in the room who was the least Christian, um, that's significant. And that light, that salt with the founding fathers was something that made a difference in the trajectory of our whole nation uh, to the point today where we see the reverberation of that here and now. And of course, it's under attack to a certain degree in our culture, but we are still very much affected by the decisions that those men made so many years ago, literally being salt in their community. So this begs the question, how are you being salt in your world? What does that look like for each and every one of us, for me, for you? I want to talk a little bit more about that towards the end of the sermon. I want to get to light first, but put that in the back of your brain and be thinking about it a little bit. So you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light in all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So you are the light of the world. A city on a hill is a great image. And I want you, um, I'm going to tell you a quick story. I, you know, I was in Pittsburgh for five, oh, I think it was more like eight years uh, before I came to community church, before Becky and I came here. And uh, we would oftentimes drive up into the city. And Pittsburgh, at night, uh, it's surrounded by hills. And so when you drive up 79, which was the main route that we would take, you would actually drive in real darkness 
and uh, you couldn't see the, the, the city coming. So if you drive into Cleveland, you can see the lights from far away, and it's kind of this gradual thing. In Pittsburgh, it wasn't that way at all. So instead, uh, we would round this hill, and then all of a sudden, the city would be right there, and be, it would be super close, and it would be this, it would be dramatic. It would be, uh, it, I mean, the first time I saw it, it kind of took my breath away. I mean, it was just really neat and cool. And I was like, oh, wow, the city's beautiful. That's kind of the picture Jesus has here, the city on a hill. It's the shining beacon that's light all around. But you know, light has a very specific purpose. If you see this light, see how it eradicates the darkness, the relative darkness of this room around me? Dark, uh, light pierces darkness and makes it disappear. And that's the image that Jesus is trying for us to understand that we are that light that pierces the darkness of this world. And so even if I turn off the light and turn it back on, you kind of see that contrast. And so even as the lights come on and focus back in on me, also note, again, if we look at this corporately as a church, many lights shine even brighter and pierce the darkness even more. And so, of course, it's significantly more light as all the lights come back on me than the one single light. But this is the image that Jesus is painting for us. So God calls his people to be light. What is this light? And where does this light come from? Who is this light? John 9, 5 speaks to this. This is Jesus speaking. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus is literally the light of the world. So this is the Son of God comes and he um, enters into our world. And amidst our sin and destruction, he uh, saves us. He dies. He saves us from our sin. And he provides the way back to God, literally being the light in the world. John 8, 12 gives us a little bit more concept. Uh, concept. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So I want to talk about that image of darkness for a second. Have you ever walked in darkness? So, you know, we've got three little kids, Becky and I do, and oftentimes in the middle of the night, they will cry, they will need something, uh, you know, they'll, they'll get sick, whatever it may be, and we'll have to check on them. And oftentimes Becky and I will take turns in the middle of the night doing that because night after night it can get a little tiresome to always go check on your little kids. And, uh, and so we do this, and uh, there are nights where uh, undoubtedly if I haven't put the toys away or the clothing away, you know, I will stumble through the darkness and I'll kick a toy, I'll run into a, a basket. You know, once I ran into a clothing basket and, and I hit it so hard that it actually tore my toenail and I started bleeding and it was, it was not good, you know. And of course, if you're too loud, you wake up all the kids and if you turn on all the lights, you wake up all the kids. So I'm literally stumbling around in the darkness. It's not fun. <laughs> and uh, that's the image, though, that God wants us to understand. That darkness, that's our sin and our death and our destruction that we bring upon ourselves in this world without God. And so we accept Jesus. We have the light of the world 
And it's like flipping on the lights. It's like being able to see that, those toys and not stepping on them and hurting my foot and stubbing my toe. And you know, it gives me the ability as I walk through life to see what God wants and how to live a more holy life. And that, you know, so not only does it bring salvation, not only does Christ bring salvation, but he brings us the ability to walk closer to him and walk away from the sin in our life. So where does this light come from? Christians get our light from Jesus. John 1, 9 through 12 gives us a little bit more context to this as well. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so we get our life from Jesus. This light gives us the ability to be children of God. Do you know that light? Do you know Jesus in your life? Because the rest of this sermon doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you don't know Christ. And so Romans 10.9 says, Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And so, you know, a really good action step, again, if you don't know Christ, is to simply go, okay, how do I know Christ? And if that's you, I'd love to talk to you after the, the sermon, after the service. I'll stay up front and would love to have a conversation about that and what that looks like. But that's your first step. So Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. Wait, I thought we just talked about how Jesus is the light of the world. So this is literally, we are the light because we have the Holy Spirit in us. So we have God, the third part of the Trinity in us. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 19. And so now we are the light of the world because we have God in us. Uh, verse 16, let your, uh, let your good works shine before men. So what do we do with the light? We share our light by piercing darkness throughout the world. Remember the image of the light piercing the dark? That is what we are to be in this world. Through what? Verse 16, our good works, which give us an opportunity to share our faith. Again, not out of our own power, that is law, we can't, that's not possible, but through God, through grace. So we are to pierce the darkness of this world. Yet we can't do this unless we are out in the world. So where and how are you being salt and light? Where and how are you shining the light of Jesus? Where are you sharing the gospel in your life? We're called to share the gospel both in word and through our good works indeed. So this can be seen throughout scripture. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7 says that Israel was to be the light of the nations. So this goes all the way back to the Old Testament where we see God's people are supposed to be uh, God's representatives and light in the world. Matthew 28, classic verse to talk about uh, missions and sharing the gospel and making disciples throughout all the world. But yet that's true even in our backyards, even in our community here in Porter's Lakes. And then uh, in Acts, we see God's people going throughout 
the, uh, the community and telling people about Jesus just as they go about life and as they uh, move out out of Jerusalem. And a great example of that is Acts 13, 47. And so I want to talk about some, some practical examples of how and where we may be shining our light. The first place uh, is very natural to talk about is probably our neighborhood. You know, we all have a context of home. It can be in an apartment building. It can be in a retirement home. It can be in a neighborhood. But we all live somewhere. In that neighborhood, do your neighbors, do they know you? Do you know them? Are you shining the light of Jesus in their life? Do they know you're a Christian? Are you being light in their world? If the answer to this is no, 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 then I, I would ask the question, why? What's getting in the way of that? I can think of half a dozen good reasons. You know, we're, you know we, we work a lot. There's simply not enough time. You know, I got three little kids. They consume my life, which is wonderful, but also really hard when I'm trying to get to know my neighbors. So there's some really good reasons, but have you thought that through? Could that be a context where you could be sharing uh, the light that God has given you to the world? And then similarly, you know, these same questions can be applied to our work, where you work. Do they know you're a Christian? Do they see your light from Christ? What about in school, for those of you who are in school? What about your friends? One that's particularly um, powerful for me is my extended family who don't know Christ. Could that be your context to share the gospel? There may be others. You have to kind of look at your own life and go, okay, you know, where can I be God's light? Where can I be in the world? Because for each one of us, it's going to be different. So let me explain this another way. Each and every one of us, and collectively this church, is a beachhead for the kingdom of God, for the gospel. What is a beachhead? So this picture is from Normandy, and it is D-Day. And the concept of a beachhead is basically, so the context is World War II. The Allied forces are trying to win back Europe. They have a front in Russia. They have a front in North, in, uh, North Africa but they don't have a front in France. And so they need to create what is called a beachhead and storm the beach of Normandy in order to create a third front to the war. And so they do this, and this is, again is D-Day, and uh, you know, so many people storm the beaches and they take foot by foot the beaches, then the countryside. And as they progress in, there's an ability to then bring troops in without being fired upon uh, in tanks and planes and start this major offensive where they eventually go and, and take back Europe and, and take the war to Germany. And they do this in about a year after launching D-Day. This concept of a beachhead. Well, we are a beachhead for the gospel. And what I mean by that is each one of us has a unique context or multiple contexts where we can be that salt and light in the world, where we can share our faith. And so it may look different for each and every one of you. And just to give you a couple of examples, maybe for some of you, 
uh, you know, that neighborhood, maybe you do um, some cookouts and you invite people over and as you get to know them, you share your faith. You don't throw it out there necessarily in the first get-go, but, uh, but you get to know your neighbors and then they begin to see the light you have, the hope you have. Maybe you start a, a babysitting uh, uh, club in, in your neighborhood. Maybe um, in the workplace, maybe you start a lunchtime Bible study or prayer group. At school, maybe you do a prayer group before school starts. Um, you know, this is particularly powerful for me in my own context of neighborhood and, and family. Um, but there's, there's all sorts of opportunities to share our faith. We just have to begin to think through it a little bit. Uh, historically, Americans are, are, have not been exactly good at sharing our faith. And there's all sorts of statistics and, 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 and metrics you can look at to see that. Um, but I think there's four major reasons for why this is the case, and I want to talk about them briefly. Uh, the first reason is I don't know how to share my faith. And so I'm sure this is some of us in the room. Hey, I was never taught. You know, I've been a Christian all my life, and I was never taught how to share my faith. I'm just not sure how to do it. Or maybe I'm a new Christian. Uh, it's so new to me. I haven't gotten that far. Again, I don't know how. This is a very legitimate uh, reason to not want to share your faith is that you don't know how. But I would say for you, the challenge I want to give you today, the action step is to go and, uh, and, and, and learn how. And so this could mean reading a book on evangelism or watching a, a YouTube video to help you understand how to do evangelism or not how to do evangelism, depending on the YouTube video you look at. Uh, this, could be, uh, this could be a lot of different things. Uh, memorize some scripture. You know, a classic way to share your faith that I really like is called the Romans Road. And if you just Google Romans Road, it'll bring up the verses and it kind of walks you through Romans and shows you how um, the basics of the gospel. I wouldn't necessarily just memorize the verses and be like, all right, I'm going to share the gospel. Here, let me spout out all these verses. But they can be a guide to show you, hey, here's the conversation I need to have. And so take that step and learn how to share the gospel. So the second reason, I don't know where to share my faith. I've talked about this a lot already, so just quickly, this idea that maybe you haven't, taught, you haven't looked at your own life and said, where's the best way to do this? You know, the part that particularly impacted me was, as I was doing my own studies is recognizing my neighborhood and my extended family. Well, why is that? Well, my place of work is a church, and last I checked, we're all saved here, so that's a good thing, right? <laughs> if not, we got a problem. Uh, so that's, that's off the table. Uh, and then I'm in school, but I'm, I'm in a Christian school where I'm working on a Christian degree, and so that's pretty much off the table. There may be exceptions there, but generally speaking, that's off the table. But my neighborhood, I don't spend a lot of time with my neighbors. I do know their names, but I need to get to know them better. And then my extended family, they don't know Christ. And so that's a big one for me too, is being present enough with my family that I can be a light in their life and share the gospel with them. And so for some of you, the big action step, the big challenge is to think through your context and just be willing to go there and be uh, committed to sharing your faith in that, in that setting. The third reason, I think it's wrong to share my faith. So this one is increasingly becoming a factor uh, in our post-modern um, uh, world, and it's this idea that it's actually wrong to share our faith uh, to other people who don't know Jesus. Barna Research, Barna Research Group uh, asked this question to a group of evangelicals, and they got these results. 
Almost half of millennials, 47%, agree at least somewhat that it is wrong to share one's personal belief with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. This is, is compared to a little over one quarter of Gen X, 27%, and one in five boomers, 19%, and elders, 20%. The Gen Z, which is our teens and young adults, they're not in here, but based on the metrics of, of the conversation, there's an assumption that they would be higher than millennials. Uh, time will tell on that one as we begin to survey them. But my challenge is for you, if this is you, my goal here is not necessarily to guilt you. I don't want to guilt you and go, oh, well, what am I thinking? What am I doing? But I do want to challenge you to look at Scripture, see these verses and other places in Scripture and go, you know, how do, I uh, how do I reconcile that view with what I see in Scripture? And then simply just put it before the Lord. Pray about it. Let him show you whether or not you need to adjust your beliefs in this area. And again, you know, I think there's some good reasons why it's maybe hard to want to share your faith. Um, but make sure that, you know, we're taking a biblical perspective to this. Additionally, as we look at this, if we truly believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven and that uh, relationship with him here and now is a better life, then we should want to share that to the people around us. That should drive how we um, live our life here and now. And so the fourth reason, I don't want to share my faith. There could be a lot of reasons for this. Uh, one, it's scary. You know, I'm an extrovert. It's a little bit easier for me to just go and talk and talk. If you're an introvert, you're going, eh, that's not me, you know. I'm not an evangelist. I've seen that in script. I'm not an evangelist, right? It's scary. It can be hard. Uh, you may feel rejected if it doesn't go well. You may feel judged. You may feel like you're being compared to the people you see on social media that you don't want to be compared to, or possibly the people that are plastered across uh, some major media networks that, again, you don't want to be associated with. And so you just don't want to, Share your faith. Again, if this is you, my action step, my challenge for you is, is to put that before the Lord. Ask him to change your heart. He'll meet you where you're at and give you the confidence and the ability and the desire to start to share your faith. Now, you may still have to then, you know, read a book on evangelism or learn how um, and, and, and look at your own context, but start, start with that prayer and where your own heart is at. Because this needs to come, again, not as a rule I must evangelize, but out of grace, out of a response of what God has done in our lives. So I want to leave you today with an example of someone that God has used to do amazing things, to be literally salt and light uh, in their community. And the person is Amy Carmichael. Amy was born in Ireland in 1867. Uh, as a teenager, she became serious about her faith. Uh, her family circumstances, she actually had to move to England. She had no choice in the matter and leave the ministry behind. But before she did so, she was now in her young 20s, so 22, 23, and she raised enough money to build a structure, an iron box, they called it. But now that's normal to have an iron structure, but back then it was the new thing. She raised enough money to build an iron structure to house these women to care for their needs, uh, staff to help them with food, and to teach them the Bible. She basically replaced herself before she left, and it created an enduring ministry. And she did this as a young lady, uneducated, uh, who saw the needs and wanted to be that salt and light in her world. 
And so she goes on and we have her, uh, she becomes a missionary and we have her biography in our, in our library. I would commend it to you. But she goes on to be a missionary and, and do some other amazing things for the Lord. And as great as all that is, this, what she did in her youth is really the example that shocks me and, and, and makes me excited. And so in light of Matthew 5, 13 through 16, I want to challenge you to take the next step. I don't know what that next step is specifically for you. It could be a variety of things. It may mean prayer. It may mean working through what you believe about evangelism. It may be learning how to evangelize better and, again, reading that book or whatever. Uh, it could be a lot of different things. But the important thing is to take that step. And before you leave today, I want to encourage you to just spend some time in prayer with God and um, ask him what that next step is. You don't need to know the specific book or the specific uh, tool you want to use or, 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 or even have an answer and be like, yes, now I want to evangelize before I didn't. Simply just pray that God would show you the next step and then be willing to take it, whatever it is. And if we do that individually, we will be that salt and light in this world. And corporately as a church, we will be the salt and light of Portage Lakes, of Akron, and then of course, ultimately unto the world.